0: Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Thursday, November 21st, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a special show today covering last night's DNC debate. Let's just roll right into it. All right, let's set the scene around the debate. It began just a few hours after the impeachment hearings for the day wrapped up. Those hearings ran longer than expected, and by the time the debate rolled around, many people paying attention to politics were a little tired out. The other key context is that the debate happened in Atlanta, Georgia, at Tyler Perry Studios. This is a venue where black voters are plentiful, and they were ready to hear from Democrats. Okay, so what were the overall themes of the debate? I would say the key themes were experience and whether candidates could assemble a coalition of voters that would in fact win them the upcoming election. So those are the big themes as I see them, experience and coalition building. The other big feature was a notable lack of conflict. Unlike many of the other DNC debates this year in which moderators provoked the candidates into specific conflicts, that happened very little last night. And in fact, the shorter schedule, the two hours versus three plus hours, seemed to have the moderators moving the action along before much conflict could develop. Yes, there were several key moments of disagreement, but those stood out sharply because there was so little outright disagreement on display. There was way less of the shouting match dynamic we've seen several times before. So that's the big picture. Now let's get into some key moments. First up, let's deal with experience. This came up repeatedly during the night. In the clip coming up, moderator Andrea Mitchell asks Buttigieg about his electoral history. Buttigieg suggests that the kind of experience he does have in the Midwest, as a mayor, and in the military, is in fact important for the presidency. He's saying perhaps traditional executive experience doesn't matter as much as we might think. And then, Klobuchar comes in with multiple issues. She deals with double standards for women, she highlights her own legislative accomplishments, and she brings up the issue of building a coalition. In her view, the winning coalition includes moderate voters. Plus, she really has written a lot of bills that actually matter and stand some chance of, in fact, passing. We've talked about her bills on this show quite a bit, and one of them also came up later in the night. And then Biden jumps in and does what Biden does. He explains that he has even more experience than anybody else on the stage, both legislatively and in the executive branch. Okay, so in this clip, we get our first big look at the experience question, as well as part of the coalition argument. Listen in.
1: Mayor Buttigieg, let's talk about your record as a candidate. You were elected mayor in a democratic city, receiving just under 11,000 votes, and in your only in your only statewide race you lost by 25 points why should democrats take the risk of betting on you
2: Because I have the right experience to take on Donald Trump. I get that it's not traditional establishment Washington experience, but I would argue we need something very different right now. In order to defeat this president, we need somebody who can go toe-to-toe, who actually comes from the kinds of communities that he's been appealing to. I don't talk a big game about uh, helping the working class while helicoptering between golf courses with my name on them. I I don't even golf. As a matter of In fact, I never thought I'd be on a Forbes magazine list, but uh, they did one of all the candidates by wealth, and I am literally the least wealthy person on this stage. I also wore the uniform of this country and know what is at stake in the decisions that are made in the Oval Office in the situation room. And I know how to bring people together to get things done. I know that from the perspective of Washington, what goes on in my city might look small, but frankly, where we live, the infighting on Capitol Hill is what looks small. The usual way of doing business in Washington is what looks small. And I believe we need to send somebody in who has a different kind of experience. The experience on the ground, solving problems, working side-by-side with neighbors on some of the toughest issues that come up in government, recognizing what is required of executive leadership, and bringing that to Washington so that Washington can start looking a little more like our best-run communities in the heartland before the other way around starts to happen.
1: Thank you, Mayor. Senator Klobuchar, you said this of Mayor Buttigieg, quote, of the women on the stage, do I think that we would be standing on that stage if we had the experience he had? No, I don't. Maybe we're held to a different standard. Senator, what did you mean by that? First of all, um, I've made very clear, I think that Pete is qualified to be up on this stage, and I am honored to be standing next to him. But what I said was true. Women are held to a higher standard. Otherwise, we could play a game called name your favorite woman president, which we can't do because it has all been men. Um, and including you know, all vice presidents being men, and I think any working woman out there, any woman that's at home knows exactly what I mean. We have to work harder, and that's a fact. But I want to dispel one thing, because for so long, why has this been happening? I don't think you have to be the tallest person on this stage to be president. I don't think you have to be the skinniest person. I don't think you have the loudest voice on the stage. I don't think that means that you will be the one that should be president. I think what matters is if you're smart, if you're competent and if you get things done. I am the one that has passed over a hundred bills as the lead Democrat in that gridlock of Washington in Congress on this stage. I think you've got to win. And I am the one, Mr. Vice President, uh, that has been able to win every red and purple congressional district as the lead on a ticket every time. I govern both with my head and my heart. And if you think a woman can't beat Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi does it every single day. <laughs> Mr. Vice President, Mr. Vice President, just a quick response.
3: I think a woman's qualified to be president, and there's no reason why, if you think the woman's the most qualified person, now you should vote for them. The reason why I think I should be president and be the nominee is number one, I have brought people together my entire career. In the United States Senate, I've passed more major legislation than everybody on this stage combined, from the Violence Against Women Act to making sure we have uh, the, the Chemical Weapons Treaty to de- dealing with Molochevich, the whole range of things that I've been engaged in my whole career. I've done it. I've brought people together. I'm always told by everybody on here, things have changed. You can't do that anymore. If we can't, I thought the question was initially asked of the senator, how do you unify this country? We have to unify this country. I have done it. I have done it repeatedly and lastly to be commander-in-chief there's no time for on-the-job training i've spent more time in the situation room more time abroad more time than anybody up here i know every major world leader they know me and they know when i speak if i'm the president of the united states who we're for who we're against and what we'll do and we'll keep our word
1: thank you thank you mr vice president ashley
0: Okay, so there's one more way to look at that clip. We have three relatively moderate candidates with different backgrounds and different kinds of experience. They're all saying they are electable because of that experience, and in some cases, because of where they come from.
3: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
4: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that.
1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: Now, let's get deeper into the coalition-building issue. In this next exchange, Harris is asked about Buttigieg and a mix-up about a stock photo. She doesn't seem to want to talk about that. Instead, she gets into the coalition necessary to win the election. So listen for that, and also listen for how Buttigieg responds at the very end. The question comes from moderator Kristen Welker. Listen in.
3: Mr. Vice President, thank you. Senator Harris, this week you criticized Mayor Pete Buttigieg's outreach to African American voters. You said, quote, the Democratic nominee has got to be someone who has the experience of connecting with all of who we are as the diversity
4: of the American people, end quote. What exactly prompted you to say that, Senator Harris? Well, 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 that was asked a question um, that related to a stock photograph um, that his campaign published. But listen, I think that it really speaks to a larger issue, and and I'll speak to the larger issue. I I believe that the um, the mayor has um, made apologies for that. Um, The larger issue is that... For too long, I think, candidates have taken for granted constituencies that have been the backbone of the Democratic Party and have overlooked those constituencies. And um, have, you know, they show up when it's, you know, close to election time and show up in a black church um, and want to get the vote, but just haven't been there before. I mean, you know, the, the... There are plenty of people who applauded black women for the success of the 2018 election, applauded black women for the election of a senator from Alabama. Um, But, you know, at some point, folks get tired of just saying, oh, you know, thank me for showing up, and and, and say, well, show up for me. Because when black women, when black women, three to four times more likely to die in connection with childbirth in America, when the sons of black women will die because of gun violence more than any other cause of death, when black women make 61 cents on the dollar as compared to all women who tragically make 80 cents on the dollar, the question has to be, where you been and what are you going to do? And do you understand? President, because I believe that we have to have leadership in this country who has worked with and have the experience of working with all folks. And we've got to recreate the Obama coalition to win. And that means about women, that's people of color, that's our LGBTQ community, that's working people, that's our labor unions. But that is how we are going to win this election, and I intend to win. Senator Harris, thank you. Mayor Buttigieg, your response to that?
2: My response is I completely agree.
0: Now, aside from completely agreeing, Buttigieg went on to talk about his faith. It was a good answer, but it was also an answer that didn't change the discussion much. It was a low-conflict answer, like so many during this debate. I want to play you one more clip on this issue of the coalition. In this one, you can hear Booker and Warren both objecting in real time that the moderators were not allowing long back-and-forth exchanges. I want you to listen to what is likely an attack that was planned in advance by Booker. And frankly, at least it's conflict, and at least it's rooted in policy, although the crack at Biden being high may not be well-received by Biden's voters. Still, Booker seems to be asking black voters why they support Biden in such large numbers when Biden's positions on issues affecting them don't necessarily match up with their own positions on those issues. This began after discussion of the wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. Alright, listen in.
4: Thank you, Senator. Senator Booker,
5: a quick response. Look, I want to be quick on this, because I'd like to get back to something that I wasn't included in, is, <laughs> so is a- abso- absolutely, if, the, if this is not effective, we see people cutting holes in his wall. His wall, what he brags about is just wrong. We need to have policies that respect dignity, keep us safe and strong. I, I wanted to return back to this issue of, of black voters. I-, I have a lifetime of experience with black voters. I've been one since I was 18. <laughs> um, Nobody on this stage should need a focus group to hear from African American voters. Uh, Black voters are pissed off and they're worried. They're pissed off because the only time our issues seem to be really paid attention to by politicians is when people are looking for their vote. And they're worried because the Democratic Party we don't want to see people miss this opportunity and lose because we are nominating someone that doesn't, isn't trusted, doesn't have authentic connection. And so that's what's on the ballot. And issues do matter. Okay. I, I have a lot of respect uh, for, for the vice president. He has uh, swore me into my office as a hero. This week, I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. And, <laughs> tell you because because marijuana 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 in our country is already legal for privileged people and it's one the war on drugs has been a war on black and brown people and so let me just let me just say this with more African Americans under criminal supervision in America than all the slaves since 1850 do not roll up into communities and not talk directly to issues that are gonna to relate to the liberation of children because there are people in Congress right now that admit to smoking marijuana, while there are people, our kids are in jail right now for those drug crimes. And so these are the kind of issues that mean a lot and if we don't have somebody authentically, we lost the last election. Let me just give you this you. data example. We lost quickly, in, in quickly, Wisconsin please. because of a massive diminution, a lot of reasons, but there was a massive diminution in the African-American vote. We need to have someone that can inspire, as Kamala said, to inspire African-Americans to the polls at Thank record you, numbers. Thank you, Senator
4: Booker. Vice President Biden, you can respond to that.
3: I'll be very brief. Number one, I think we should decriminalize marijuana, period. And I think everyone, anyone who has a record should be let out to jail their records expunged it'd be completely zeroed out but I do think it makes sense based on data that we should study what the long term effects are for the use of marijuana that's all it is number one everybody gets out record expunged secondly I uh, you know I'm I'm part of that that Obama coalition I come out of the black community in terms of my support if you notice I have more people supporting me in the black community that have announced for me because they they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus. The only African American woman that had ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, my point that's no, is true. That's not true. I said the first. Thank I said the first African American Come the first. So my point is. I plan one of the reasons I was picked to be vice president was because of my relationship, long-standing relationship with the black community. I was part of that coalition.
4: Thank you, Krista.
0: Okay, so I want to clarify that little bit at the end. Biden apparently meant to say the first black woman elected to the Senate. That is Carol Mosley Braun of Illinois, who has endorsed his bid for president. Of course, Harris, who is standing right there on the stage, is in fact the second black woman elected to the Senate. So, just clearing that bit up, moving on. Yesterday, I reported that former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Julian Castro asked a question on Twitter. He wondered whether this debate might be the first to actually ask a question about housing policy. Now, Castro did not qualify for the debate, so he wasn't there. And, of course, here comes the housing question. In this case, moderator Kristen Welker put the question to Tom Steyer. Throughout the night, Steyer emphasized his focus on climate change, and he mentions it briefly here, too. But he also gets at the fact of housing as an issue of equality, that the location of housing makes a difference, and so does its cost and the manner in which it is built. Listen in.
3: Mr. Steyer, millions of working Americans are finding that housing has become unaffordable, especially in metropolitan areas. It is particularly acute in your home state of California and places like Los Angeles and San Francisco. Why are you the best person to fix this problem?
6: When you look at inequality in the United States of America, you have to start with housing. Where you put your head at night determines so many things about your life. It determines where your kids go to school. It determines the air you breathe, where you shop, how long it takes you to get to work. What we've seen in California is as a result of policy, we have millions too few housing units. And that affects everything. Everybody in California it starts with a homeless crisis that goes all through the state but it also includes skyrocketing rents that affect every single working person in the state of California I understand exactly what needs to be done here which is we need to change policy and we need to apply resources here to make sure that we build literally millions of new units But the other thing that's going to be true about building these units is, we're going to have to build them in a way that's sustainable, that in fact, how we build units, where people live has a dramatic impact on climate and on sustainability. So we are going to have to direct dollars, we're going to have to change policy and make sure that the the localities and municipalities who've worked very hard to make sure that there are no new housing units built in their towns they have to change that and we're going to have to force it. And then we're going to have to direct federal dollars to make sure that those units are affordable so that working people can live in places and not be spending 50% of their income on rent.
3: Thank you, Mr. Sire, Senator.
0: So this was one example of a straightforward policy answer. But at the same time, there wasn't any real debate on this issue. After Steyer finished his answer, Warren jumped in to agree, but also emphasized that redlining has increased segregation and prevented people of color from building wealth through owning homes, and that the federal government plays a role in that by subsidizing home loans. Then, Booker jumped in to speak to his experience as a mayor and a tenants' rights lawyer. He agreed with much of what had just been said, but added his own experience— And then before anybody else could get in on the issue, the moderators cut it off and went to a commercial break. So while this was a set of reasonable and well-delivered responses, again, it was not much of a debate per se. This was a core theme of the night, a lack of major conflict. All right, next topic. And next up, let's hear from Andrew Yang. He got the least talk time of the night at just under 7 minutes. This does fit a pattern of Yang being at the bottom of the talk time rankings. At the top last night was Warren with more than 13 minutes. I suppose the good news for Yang is that of the little time he got, every response was memorable. He made several very well-received jokes, and he responded to policy issues with clear and straightforward answers. So I'm going to play a clip here of Yang responding to a question about paid family leave. To my knowledge, this is actually the first time we've heard this issue brought up in any 2019 DNC debate so far. Moderator Ashley Parker speaks first. Listen in.
4: We now focus on an issue facing many Americans, childcare and paid family leave. Here in Georgia, the average price of infant daycare can be as much as $8,500 per child per year. That's more than in-state tuition at a four-year public college in Georgia. Mr. Yang, what would you do as president to ease that financial burden?
7: There are only two countries in the world that don't have paid family leave for new moms, the United States of America and Papua New Guinea. That is the entire list, and we need to get off this list as soon as possible. <laughs> I would pass paid family leave as one of the first things we do. I have two kids myself who are four and seven, one of whom is autistic and has special needs, and it's breaking families' backs. We need to start supporting our kids and families from the beginning, because by the time they're showing up to pre-K and kindergarten, in many they're already years behind. Studies have shown that two-thirds of our kids' educational outcomes are determined by what's happening to them at home. This is stress levels, number of words read to them as children, Type of neighborhood, whether a parent has time to spend with them. So we need to have a freedom dividend in place from day one, $1,000 a month for every American adult, which would put in many cases $2,000 a month into families' pockets so that they can either pay for childcare or if they want, stay home with the child. We should not be pushing everyone to leave the home in, and go to the workforce. Many parents see that trade off and say if they leave the home and work, they're going to be spending all the money on childcare anyway. In in many case, it'd be better if the parent stays home with the child.
4: Thank you, Mr. Yang.
0: And in case you're wondering about the fact check there, according to the Washington Post, multiple studies say the U.S. and Papua New Guinea are alone in the world in not offering any federal guarantee of paid maternity leave. However, another study suggests a tiny handful of other countries are in the same boat, including Lesotho, Liberia, and Swaziland. So, I think Yang's point still stands. And now for my closing remarks. While I don't have any viewer numbers yet, I suspect that this will be one of the least watched debates of this primary cycle. For one thing, it was only aired on cable, and that tends to restrict the audience quite a bit. But also, this is the same set of candidates we had last time, minus two from Texas. Furthermore, the news cycle is massively dominated by the impeachment inquiry, which makes it less likely, in my opinion, that your average viewer is going to stay up until 9pm in order to start taking in even more political news. This was not a badly run debate, it's just a debate that might not matter very much. It was well moderated, and it touched on issues that have not been brought up enough. I'm looking at you, climate change and housing and Saudi Arabia and paid family leave but I sincerely doubt it moved the needle much for voters. If you went into this debate liking a candidate, you probably left liking that candidate just as much. So I was left with a ho-hum feeling. Candidates gave pretty good answers to pretty good questions, but were those answers enough to shift support away from somebody else? I doubt it, though of course that's what polling is for, so we'll watch for that in the coming days. The one candidate on that stage who is in severe jeopardy of not making the next debate is Booker. He currently has none of the required polls, though he does have the donors he needs. He has about three weeks to get four qualifying polls. If this performance, plus that super PAC I told you about last week that he doesn't approve of but is advertising on his behalf, can't get him another few percent in the polls, that will probably be the end of his campaign." Well, that's it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Tomorrow, we'll be back to our regular format, and there is plenty of news to cover. There are some policies mentioned in last night's debate that deserve a summary, so we will dig into those. And there's, you know, some stuff happening in the impeachment inquiry. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.